many of you guys know that uh, I have two little boys at home, Oliver and Elijah, and uh, they don't talk much outside of our home, but inside of our home, I can't get them to shut up. Seriously, they just jabber, 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 and that's what most of it is, is gibberish. I have no idea what they're saying, and sometimes they're really excited about something, and it's like, wow, that's um, great, and sometimes they're really sad about something, and I'm like, what happened, and then okay, I still don't know. And then sometimes they're mad and I don't know what they're mad about, which makes them more mad that I don't understand what they're saying. And so, you know, being a a dad has been a lot of fun, but confusing also. Um, And then one of the things though, that they do know how to say really, really well, this is going to blow your mind, is no. It's like they came out of the womb knowing how to say that word, no, um, all the time. And um, so you say like, hey, Elijah, who's a year and a half old, Elijah, do you want to take a nap? He'll say, no, mm-mm. And he does a little mm-mm. He's all sassy like that, okay? And then Oliver, you can be like, hey, Oliver, it looks like you have to go potty. Do you have to go potty? No, don't want to. Okay, well, <laughs> you're going to have to at some point. So, but yeah, so they know they know how to say no. Another thing that they know how to say really well is uh mine. Mine, mine. So it's like you walk up to Elijah who might be snacking on some goldfish and you try to take one, mine. You walk over to Oliver who's playing with his toys and he'll say mine, like don't touch them. And uh so you can kind of tell that there's some things that kids are really good at. Um and then one of the phases that my kids aren't in yet, but those of you with older kids know that this is true, is that they go through a I'll do it myself phase. Do it myself. I don't want your help. I'm just gonna do it myself. And so I don't have kids old enough yet. They haven't been saying that. I still get to help them out with some things, but eventually they're going to want to do everything by themselves. And those of you with older, older kids know that that phase doesn't end until someone has to pay for college. And then they don't want to do it themselves. It's like, hey, you want to do this? All right, good, awesome. Everything else I want to do it myself. Now, here's the thing. I don't think we ever really grow out of it. Uh, I, I think that as adults, we still like to say no. We still like to say mine. And we still like to say I'll do it myself. I mean, so we never ever, I don't think, actually grow out of it. We just use adult words and adult phrases to say those exact same things. And so... Um, And I think that part of it, it does come down to the same reason our kids say it, which is a sense of autonomy. You know, they want to know that they're in control of their bodies. And and we want to know that we are in control of our bodies. And we want to celebrate freedom and independence, which we did this week, right? And we celebrate freedom. and, And every single one of us wants freedom. We want to know that in our career, we did it all by myself. So whatever promotion I get, whatever raise I get, it wasn't because of anything anyone else has ever done. It's all me. Or when I get a raise at work and I make more money, I want to know that my finances are in good shape because of what I did, not anything anyone else uh, did for me. We all want to fill in the blank, but the idea is the same. We all want autonomy and independence. We all want to take credit for 100% of our achievements and never ever give anyone credit for anything because it's it's, it's up to us, right? And uh, while I do believe that every person in the world desires this, I think it's human nature to desire autonomy. I think it's something that's very ingrained into our American culture. Again, we just celebrated the 4th of July, which is about independence and freedom. And so it is very much into our culture that we... Um, 
love freedom and autonomy. We love stories, don't we? Netflix, movies, books, uh, it doesn't matter. We love the stories uh, in which somebody overcomes something all by themselves. They just push through insurmountable situations and circumstances, and at the end, they come through victoriously. I mean, we absolutely positively love stories like that. We want to believe that those stories are also there for us. Um, a couple hundred years ago, a French philosopher came to check out the United States. He's from France, and so he came to check out the United States. And when he came to New York, here's what he uh, here's what he described about what he noticed about Americans even a hundred years ago. He says, "Each of them, withdrawn into himself, is almost unaware of the fate of the rest. Mankind for him consists of his children and his personal friends. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, they're near enough, but he does not notice them. He touches them, but feels nothing. He exists in and for himself. My first thought in hearing that was like, it totally sounds like something a French guy would say about the United States. You know, they're just jealous of us. But as I begin to think about it, I begin to think, you know, that's the, that, that, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe it's a little, it's, it's uncomfortable because it's so true that when I think about the decisions I make every single day or my priorities or my values, it really does like serve me first and then my kids next and then my friends next. And yeah, I got neighbors and coworkers, but like I don't have time with all of the stuff that I got to do for me and my kids and my friends. And so the French guys kind of saying, hey, you know, the Americans are kind of consumed with themselves and not much has changed and, and we still kind of are. And, and, why am I talking about this? Not to make you feel bad, so don't feel bad just yet. I've got more bad news, but um, I'm bringing this all up because, as you guys know, last week we started a series called Bumper Sticker Theology. Bumper Sticker Theology, and we're doing this series not so that you could go to seminary and get an A on a Bible class test. Like That's not at all why we're doing this. We're doing this because um, in real life, real life things happen, and real life things are very difficult, and sometimes when we're going through really difficult or challenging times or someone we know know is we give them kind of a really short, lame answer to that. I mean, when someone loses a job or has a miscarriage, some of the things that we say to them, we try to spiritualize it. And we say, well, you know, um, uh, uh, God won't give you more than you can handle. And, it, and that's what we talked about last week. And we said, well, that, that sounds spiritual. But if you've ever been on the flip side of that, where you're going through a really rough time and someone says, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's like, oh, gee, thanks. Like, oh, all of a sudden I feel better about losing my job. No, I don't. I'm still not getting a paycheck on Friday. So, you know, like still kind of a bummer. And so what we got to do as as Christians and believers, and I wouldn't suppose that everyone in here is, but what we have to do as believers is like our faith needs to grow. Our faith needs to mature. It's We're done with the Sunday school answers. Faith really can stand up to the hard parts of life. For a lot of times, it just seemed like we had Sunday school answers for our real life problems, and that's that's not okay. We do have grown-up answers for our grown-up problems because of our faith, and that's why we're doing this series called Bumper Sticker Theology. And throughout the whole series, what we're asking is, is this saying biblically sound, or does it just sound biblical? Is the saying biblically sound, or does this sound biblical? Okay, do you guys kind of catch the difference? Does it sound spiritual, or is it spiritual? Is it true, or does it just sound true? And almost always, throughout this entire series, it's going to sound true, but it's not true. And we're going to spend the rest of today talking about why the saying, God helps those who help themselves, is not 
true. <laughs> so I know some of you are crushed. And the reason that some of you are crushed is because Barna Research did a little study. They sent out, they do studies all the time, and they asked people about this. And did you know that seven out of 10 people, that's seven out of 10 of you, the vast majority believe that this statement, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible? And as you're probably, if you're keeping up with me right now, you're figuring out that I'm about to tell you that it's not in the Bible. So seven, only three out of 10 of you knew that this wasn't in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. And, but why do we uh, go with it? And why do we say it? And why do we believe it? Why does it sound good? Well, um, I, I think that the reason we say this is, could be selfish. I, I do think that we want to take credit for everything that we did. Like everything I did, it wasn't because I was like blessed by God or highly favored by God or God opened doors for me is because of my hard work, my dedication, my preparation, and my skills. And the reason we like to do that eh, is a little prideful and a little arrogant, but we want to believe a couple things. One, we want to believe that we can become anything we want to be and do anything we want to do, right? That's the American dream. And I'm not picking on that, okay? So please don't get hung up on that. But what I'm saying is every single person wants to believe that we can do anything we want, wherever we want, however we want. Now, what I would say is like, I could never, ever play quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, no matter how hard I tried. And I really, really want to tell you, I tried hard. But at 5'10 and 140 pounds, I'm not exactly what you would call NFL material, okay? So there were some things that were just out of my control. But now the flip side of that, okay, because we want to believe that we can become and do anything. But the flip side of that is that we want to believe that anyone who isn't us, who doesn't have the job that we do, who doesn't have the money we do, it's because they're not trying as hard as us. And in that way, that comparison makes us feel good about ourselves. Look how many other people I'm better than. Because I work harder, because I'm smarter, because I'm better looking, because of whatever reasons, right? And so we want to keep people down. And it kind of, and society then shows us where we're at. Well, I'm better than them, and I could be them. And so I think that when we hear this saying that God helps those who help themselves, we're like, yeah, God blesses me because I work hard, and God doesn't bless them because they, they don't work hard, which then like gives us a pass, right? It does subconsciously maybe, like you're not going to help somebody that God's not going to help, right? So like when you see somebody who's in need and you have this idea in your mind that God helps those who help themselves, and if God's not helping them because they're not helping themselves, why should I help them? I mean, shouldn't they first help themselves? And then if they help themselves, then God would help them. And then sure, I could be the last line of defense and, and I would help them too. But they probably wouldn't need my help at that point if they just helped themselves and then God helped them. So it kind of gives us an excuse to never, ever, 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 ever be accountable for anything that we would ever do outside of our own lives. So we kind of like it. It gives us credit for our own lives, gives us a past to not help people. And again, I think it keeps helping us push other people down. Sometimes we get a little bit frustrated about people in our society that we feel abuse systems that we have set up in place to help people. We're like, oh, well, they're just doing that because they want... X, Y, Z, whatever that is. And so we get frustrated. And so we kind of spiritualize that God is leaving those people out. We're like, yeah, God would never, ever, ever help those kinds of people. Now, um, I know I'm probably leaving a couple other big reasons out on why we like it, but um, where does this idea that God helps the, those who help themselves come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. I mean, it, you could Google it and find it on Wikipedia. It's really easy, actually. Um, it comes from a story about Hercules in the 5th century BC. So there's a guy who comes up and he sees Hercules and he prays to Hercules and he prays for Hercules' help. He needs help and he prays for Hercules' help. And Hercules tells the guy that the gods help them that help themselves. So get to work. 
So the next time you think, or the next time you go to tell someone that God helps those who help themselves, just make sure you quote the person right. It's Hercules, not Jesus. Okay, now you probably feel silly. You're like, I'm never going to do that again. Good, I hope so. Okay, well, no, but I'm not done yet piling it on. Um, we also see Benjamin Franklin use it in his 1936 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac. So you can quote Ben Franklin, you can quote Hercules, but this saying that God helps those who help themselves is not a Christian belief at all. So where do Christians come up with this idea? I'm, I'm getting there. So I think it probably comes from a misinterpretation of a passage that's found in 2 Thessalonians. Paul writes to them, he says, even when we were with you, we were giving you this command, if anyone doesn't want to work, they shouldn't eat. Now let's pull up the next slide, which is a side-by-side comparison, I believe. So you can kind of see where we get off track a little bit. If anyone doesn't want to work, they shouldn't eat. God helps those who help themselves. You can kind of see the parallel, right? So I can see where where good-intended, well-meaning Christians got off track. But we are off track. So let's fix it. Um, last week I mentioned that sometimes it's helpful in church to break down a particular word. We said, what does this word mean to them and, and uses? And throughout this series, it actually helps us to understand the whole historical context of what's going on. And, and so last week we talked about it. And this week we're going to talk about what's going on in Thessalonica that Paul would say, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. It's actually not that complicated. It's going to take us like 30 seconds to get through. Um, back then, it was very common in the church that you would have a benevolence fund that people would bring stuff that other people might need into the community. So they helped each other out. That was just part of being the Christian church. So if you didn't get a paycheck, you didn't have to starve to death. Your family didn't have to starve to death. And people would bring in all sorts of money and supplies, materials, whatever it was. They would tithe to the church, and they had this fund. Now, what was beginning to happen in Thessalonica was you were having a group of people who thought, hey, this is permanent spring break. (laughs) This is great because everyone else works so I don't have to. And then once a week, I'll just go to church and pick up a paycheck and then go. And Paul says, you know, that's, no, that's not at all why we started this whole system of benevolence. It wasn't just so that you could just never, ever work because, you know, you, you couldn't find something you were passionate about or you, you didn't have a calling or your boss was a jerk. Paul said, no, 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 no. He says, if you can work, you should absolutely positively work. That's not what the benevolence fund is for. And so, when we look at the side-by-side comparison, if anyone doesn't want to work, they shouldn't eat. Paul is just saying, hey, you know, there's some people who are making a choice not to contribute. And because they are not contributing and they could contribute, but they don't want to contribute, they shouldn't reap the benefits of a contributing community, which is way different than God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> like It's like the opposite. Even though it sounds the same, it's the opposite. And so there are people who were slacking off, and and Paul says, that's enough. Um, He's not saying you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make it on your own. Um, At some point in every single person's life in here, you already know, because at one point you were a kid, so if you're an adult now, it means you made it through childhood because of someone else. You had a mom or dad who bought your food, who got your clothes, who helped raise you. Uh, And so none of us got here on our own. But what Paul is saying is that um, no excuses. If you don't work, then you don't get to eat, which sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Just a little bit like, hey, if you don't ever contribute, you don't get to eat. Now, if that was the only verse in the Bible that we had today, uh, church would look a lot different. 
our faith would be a lot different. This was the only Bible verse we have, but it's not. And throughout the entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, there is this really big theme. As a matter of fact, one-third of the entire Bible either directly or indirectly deals with the theme of money. (laughs) One-third of the Bible either directly or indirectly talks about poverty, wealth, or social justice. It's like God knew that money was going to be an issue for humans. You know, God really kind of nailed it on this one. And so... um, Let's look at Proverbs 31 together as we try to balance off. We say, okay, well, if one-third of the Bible is dealing with like wealth and poverty, and, and we have this Bible verse that says you, if you don't work, you don't eat, how do we reconcile what seems to be two competing ideas? And if we go to Proverbs 31, when Proverbs is a book of all sorts of wisdom writing. It's like Christian fortune cookies. And what happens um, in Proverbs 31 is that the writer um, is writing down wisdom that he got from his mom. So like, you know, mom's in the room, you're full of wisdom, tell your kids that wisdom, maybe they'll write a book and it'll end up in the Bible someday. But uh, in this Proverbs 31, uh, in verses 8 and 9, I think that this summarizes really well the reconciliation that needs to happen. The writer says, speak out on behalf of the voiceless and for the rights of all who are vulnerable Speak out in order to judge with righteousness and to defend the needy and the poor. So he says, the first thing he says is speak on behalf of the voiceless. Now there are a lot of passages that talk about being still and being slow to speak. And this doesn't at all contradict it because he's saying, I want you to speak on behalf of someone else. So we could still be still and we can still be slow to talk, but that means we're more eager to listen. And when we listen to other people and, and he goes off and he says the voiceless and those who are vulnerable. And as we listen to them, they're saying, Hey, you know, the most Christian thing you can do, the most Christ-like thing that you can do is speak on their behalf. Perhaps they don't have a voice. And in some places of the world, certain groups of people don't have a voice, right? Okay. But it could be that somebody does have a voice, but nobody's listening. And because you come from a position of power or influence, God is saying through this proverb, we need to speak on behalf of those who can't speak or that people aren't listening to. What is he saying? It's not that God helps those who help themselves. What he's saying is you help those who can't help themselves. That's what the Proverbs is telling us that's the connection between this whole arc, the theme of generosity in the Bible. And if they don't work, don't, you know, feed them. And, and what do we do? Be a voice. Well, what he's saying is, is that you help those who can't help themselves. If you are able to help someone do it, you don't need to ask God. You don't need to wait for his permission. He's already told you, if you see a need, Meet the need if you're able to, because people matter. Now, the second thing he tells us to do, I think, I suspect that some of you are going to be a little resistant because he says, speak out in order to judge with righteousness. Now, a lot of your story has to do probably with going to a church one time or another and you felt judged, which is hurtful, and you probably were judged. I'm not saying that you just felt it, you probably were. And so you stopped going to church for a long time, you started to heal, and you came back, and now you're at this church, and hopefully you don't ever feel like we're judging you for some reason or another. But he says, speak out to judge. So we need to look into this because when we hear the word judge, we do not think what this person 
is intending for us to think. And um, actually, there's a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, kind of pop psychology stuff and um, that I really like. But he does a really good idea, I think, in the, or a really good job in this book of communicating what we're talking about when it comes to judging for righteousness. Um, and in the book, point of the book, if you're going to take away one idea from the book, is that advantage is accumulated. Gladwell writes, those who are successful, in other words, are most likely to be given the kinds of special opportunities that lead to further success. I'll break this down really easy for you, okay? So let's say you want to be the president and CEO of Apple. You're just like, you're, you just want to be it. Well, what Gladwell is saying is, Right now, as of today, if you're sitting in this room in Madison, Wisconsin, you're probably not on the fast track to being the president and CEO of Apple. But if you were the vice president of Apple, or if you were even on the board of Apple, now work backwards. How do you get to be on the board at Apple? Well, you probably have to have a tech background. Living in California probably helps. Um, being really smart, having those giftedness, all of those things help. And so what Gladwell is saying in the book is that oftentimes in life, good things lead to more good things. And that's true. And that's okay. It does, it's not a bad thing. But the fact is, is that good things lead to more good things. If you want to be the president of Apple, being on the board helps and, and finding out to get on the board. Now, he actually did this thing in the book where he, he found a study here about um, Canadian hockey players. Now, I don't suppose, I don't care about hockey. I don't suppose that you care about hockey, but you might care about this um, thing that we found out about hockey players, he showed that if you wanted to be a great hockey player in Canada, that 40% of them were born between January and March. So if you want to be this amazing hockey player in Canada, which is like their football, you know, they're kind of weird. But um, if you want to be an amazing, it really, 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 really helps if you were born January, February, and March. Now, contrast that with only 10% were born between October November, and December. So if you want to be a hockey player, your odds are better if you're born January, February, March in Canada and not October, November, and December. Now, why is it? Now, it's not because of astrology. Um, Gladwell goes on to explain why this is. He says, the explanation for this is quite simple. It has nothing to do with astrology, nor is there anything magical about the first three months of the year. It's simply that Canada, in Canada, the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey is January 1st. So a boy who turns 10 January 2nd then could be playing alongside someone who doesn't turn 10 until the end of the year. And at that age, in pre-adolescent, a 12-month gap in age represents an enormous difference in physical maturity. So what is he saying? Well, he says it helps to be born in January or February because you're going to be massively bigger than the kid that you're almost a year older than down the road. Now, what doesn't he say? He doesn't say that everyone born in January, February, March of Canada goes on to play hockey. It's not 100%. He also doesn't say that if you're born in December that you don't have a chance. But what he's saying is that it certainly helps if you are. And, and so I bring that up not because, again, that you care about Canada or hockey, but let's talk about this. 25% of the homeless population suffers from mental illness. So when we're walking on the street, and this comes back to this idea of judging people righteously, when we're walking on State Street or downtown Madison and we see somebody homeless, do we think what? 
that they're lazy or they're a bum or something? Or do we think that this is a person who's struggling with mental illness that perhaps you can relate to? Do we judge them righteously or not? 60% of young men who have been in foster care in the state of Wisconsin, 60% of the young men who've been in foster care in Wisconsin will be convicted of a crime and have been. So when we see a person who's being convicted of a crime and we see on Facebook when the Wisconsin State Journal posts their mugshot, do we think that that's a troublemaker, that what's going on? Or do we see, if we're judged righteously, do we see a little boy who didn't grow up with his biological parents? Do we see a little boy who went from one foster home to the next foster home? Do we see a little boy who desperately wants to be loved? What do we see? 80% of those in prostitution were sexually assaulted as children. So when we think about pornography and we think about prostitutes and we see that, we hear about it, what do we think? Do we think that these were little children who somebody preyed on them, somebody was a predator and harmed them, or do we think something else? So when the writer of Proverbs is talking about judge righteously, it is not at all what we think in our society. It's not at all what you've experienced in the church world. It's completely different. It's looking beyond the outer circumstances inside someone. And that is what we need to do, and that's what we want to do. And in other words, God helps those who can't help themselves. Just like we're supposed to help people who can't help themselves, God helps those who can't help themselves. God has helped me. God has helped you. When we were all far away from God, anyone in here is a Christian, when you were far away from God, God came for you. 2,000 years ago, he lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we all deserved so he could help us when we could not help ourselves. John writes in his first letter, he says, this is how we know love. Jesus laid his life down for us. But he goes on to say, he says, this is how we know love. Jesus laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But if someone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but refuses to help, how can the love of God dwell in a person like that? Okay, he's not saying that if you don't help someone, like God's love leaves the earth. That's not what he's saying. He's being snarky. Okay, you got, you're reading that right. If you feel like he's being sarcastic, he is. He's saying if you have the means to help someone and you don't, how can you even say that you're a Christian? How can you say you're a believer? How can you say that God's love is in you? That's what John is saying. If John was here today, that's, that's the verbiage he would use. He says, how can the love of God dwell in a person who has material possessions, sees someone in need, and refuses to help? That's convicting. Because we're talking about an era in which they didn't have 401ks and saving bonds and vehicles and big houses and college savings funds and all of those things. It's not at all. That's not what he's saying. He says, if you have material possession. So the challenge to us is even greater because we do have a lot of financial and material wealth in the United States as Americans. It's super convicting. And so I want to challenge you in a few different ways. Earlier this year, and if you weren't here when we did the series, Genetically Generous, we, we rolled out a ton of research that was done on generosity. And I want to talk to you about helping people who can't help themselves. And the three ways that we do that is through financial giving, through volunteering, 
And by living these relationally open lives, I'll just briefly talk about these three because it's a challenge of us today. If you want to take in this message and say, I want to do something, I want to respond, here are three possible steps. The first one is to volunteer. What would it look like right now if you don't already volunteer? And I'm not necessarily saying Madison Church, but I think Madison Church is a great place to start. But what would it look like to go from not volunteering at all to volunteering just once a week with us? Once a month, sorry. Once a month with us. What would it look like, okay? If you already volunteer, what would it look like to give financially if you don't already? Like, oh, that's kind of scary. But remember the passage where we're talking about we want to help people who can't help themselves. You know, well, I already volunteer and I already give. This last one is also really challenging, which is what would it lo- live like to live a relationally open life? One that we invite people into our lives. We tell them about Jesus, we tell them about God, and then we invite them to be a part of our faith community. We invite them to an activity, we invite them to a service, we invite them to a small group. Because here's the thing, finances will help some needs, and serving will help other needs. But there are some needs that we have that only God can meet. And that's why we have to live relationally open lives and invite people into not just church, but into our lives and to build a relationship, not because they're a project, because they're not projects, they're real people, but to say that I want to invite you in because I recognize a spiritual gap in your life, I recognize a spiritual darkness in your life, and I know that there's only one thing in the entire world that can meet that need, and that's God. So I would challenge every single one of you today to think about it. Do I need to start volunteering? Do I need to give? Or do I need to start living this relationally open life? And I would say that if you're somebody in here, maybe you're thinking, you know, I do all three of those pretty well. Okay, I would then challenge you to go a step further. What would it look like to be a volunteer leader, organizer, coordinator? What would it look like to tithe or give above the tithe, relationally open? What would it like to host a small group instead of just go to one. And so I think that there's a next step, practically speaking, for every single person here or watching or listening online based on this conversation of God helps those who can't help themselves, and we should too. People like every single one of us, when we have to stop believing that God helps those who help themselves, okay? Like, we, that's not really graceful. God's grace means that he helps those who can't help themselves,